Kelly Lambert was my partner in crime when we were journeymen together in West Africa. It was a two-year program of the Foreign, Bag Foreign Mission Board where college graduates would go and work alongside career missionaries for, for two years. And we both would be working at the Baptist, Audio, Baptist Media Center. Um, Kelly would be working in publications and I in audiovisuals. Publications, um, the, the director of publications was also working on his dissertation at the time. And so he spent more time in his home office than he did at the publications office. And Kelly then, at age 25, was dropped basically into an executive position with no coach to help her figure out her job, no great introduction to her coworkers, and all of this in the French language in a different culture. Well, she handled it well. And a few difficult and exasperating months later, when the director resurfaced and was um, leaving for his stateside assignment, all the employees of the center gathered to wish him well and invited him to speak. Among his comments that day, he publicly apologized to Kelly for leaving her on her own and congratulated her on handling everything so well. And I was shocked to hear it. And I assumed Kelly was too. And so I asked her afterwards how she felt about the director's apology. And her response has stuck with me because it wasn't angry, it wasn't cynical, it was full of the Christ-like spirit. She said, I forgave him for everything he had ever done. As we're stepping gingerly through Lent, Kelly reminds us of the power of apology and forgiveness. She went into her job with an expectation that she had a director. She was going to be the assistant director, and so someone would be there to teach her and to guide her. But her expectations were broken, and it caused uncertainty, difficulty with communication, and disappointment, all of which leads to stress. But with that singular apology, a relationship was mended and the grievances were washed away, almost like a baptism. Jeremiah is preaching to people who were dealing with broken expectations. They had been scattered from their homeland. Their temple had been destroyed. The people blamed God, and yet they blamed themselves because they knew that they had been unfaithful to God, to the covenant that God had created with them. I will be your God, and you will be my people. In fact, God had tried several covenants before with Noah, with Abraham, with Jacob, and time and again, the people broke their end of the covenant. And so then we have this wonderful passage in Jeremiah 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. 
a young student was telling his school teacher about his grandparents who were celebrating their 50th anniversary. His teacher was impressed and said, your grandparents certainly are lucky. And the boy said, oh no, grandma told me it wasn't luck. She said it took a lot of work. Well, think about how many anniversaries God and the people had been through. God had remained a loyal, faithful husband to his bride, the people of Israel and Judah, while the bride was unfaithful to God. And so I wonder if part of God's struggle was, how do you motivate faithfulness in a group of people who really don't want to be motivated? Some leadership gurus will tell you that leaders cannot motivate anyone. The best they can do is hope to inspire them. So maybe that's one thing that brings God's new covenant to the people. A new way to inspire. Alfred Austin was a British poet laureate in the late 1800s, but even with his fame, someone chided him for grammatical errors in his verses. And Austin excused himself by saying, I dare not alter these things. They come to me from above. Now it's playful, maybe a little cocky, but still he recognized that he was inspired by the God who created him, who gave him his gifts, and inspired him to create in new ways. And through God's inspiration, his his poetry has inspired countless others. And in a similar way, God has placed within us inspiration. This is the covenant I will make, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Words of comfort among many words of judgment. Have you ever felt mysteriously inspired to do something? Maybe you've made a donation when you didn't feel like you had the extra money to do so, or maybe you phoned someone to see how they were doing to find that they really needed that expression of concern. Maybe you felt mysteriously inspired to dedicate your life to follow Jesus or divinely called to a specific mission or ministry. I remember one mom saying that One time she was vacuuming the house, and she got the sense that something was wrong with one of her daughters. Uh, Randy, this is one of your girls. Uh, And so she turned off the vacuum cleaner, and she went to find out that her youngest daughter had a dime stuck in her throat. Now, what? You know, it was just, it was one of those mysterious things. There's something about this new covenant that is written within us, that's written on our hearts. Listen to Jesus dealing with the divine law written on his heart from chapter 12 of John's gospel. Now my soul is troubled, he says. 
And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Among the many facets of Jesus that draw us to him is that he did what was right despite the pain it caused him. He publicly trampled on the laws of his religion that showed empty piety. He showed compassion for people who were cast out from appropriate society. And maybe most importantly, I don't know how to quantify it, but at least very importantly, he did not fight violence with violence, but fought violence with peace. Will Willimon reminds us that the word conscience means to know together with. Con, with. Science, to know. So to know together with. And so in his words, conscience, which we sometimes think of as innate, personal, a little voice within, doesn't stand alone. Conscience is when we think with outside help. Or maybe we could expand that based on Jeremiah to say, conscience is when we think with inside help. Because we recognize that the Holy Spirit, which Jesus offered to us through his Father, is, remains within us, remains as our guide. A man sent a check to the IRS for $100 with a note. It read, I just have not been able to sleep, so here is $100 that I owe you. If I still can't sleep after that, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) Our consciences keep us awake at night. They may have arguments within themselves as temptations challenge challenge us. Yes, I will. No, I won't. Yes, no, back, forth. Two chapters later, chapter 14 of John's Gospel, when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure, he also prepared them to receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Now, this word that is translated advocate is one, in one version is also translated comforter in other versions. Both of them come from a, a word that's so broad that one word can't encompass it. The word is paraclete, if we transliterated it. Paraclete, one who comes along beside That one that comes along beside is that one working within us. That one who is inspiring us. Excuse me. And notice how that word inspire contains part of spirit. Inspire, spirit, breath. The breath that comes in from God. The new covenant of which Jeremiah speaks deepens in reality when 
God is incarnated as Jesus Christ. Jesus inspires us by his willingness to follow God's law that is written upon his heart. Now, it's been said that a clear conscience and forgiveness of others are usually signs of a bad memory. Jeremiah tells us that a clear conscience and forgiveness of others are divine gifts. We can't know forgiveness unless we have known failure. We, have, we recognize then that the sins and the transgressions, those iniquities, those ancient words of which the Psalms speak, those are a part of who we are too. We can't be perfect. And it would really be scary to meet someone perfect, I think. But God has created each of us with our special gifts, with our special abilities, our special talents, our amount of time and breath and days. And they're given not for us as individuals. They're given to us as community to share with each other. And when we pay attention to those words of the new covenant that are written upon our heart, that help us to know the Lord at all times, then we enhance the community. And that's true not just in a congregation. It's true in any kind of organization. It's true in city government. It's true in the state. It's true in our schools. It's true wherever we go. Wherever we can recognize that new covenant and be inspired by that Holy Spirit, the Lord is there and God's kingdom grows. Let's pray together. We thank you, O God, for remembering the covenant and for remembering to forget our selfish ways. We pray that you would inspire us again and again to pay attention to your words within and act on them without. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.